I think there are some phases in, in that transformation. The first phase is kind of getting beyond the good buy, bad buy mentality and just having a process for saying, hey, we're going to look at a broader array of ingredients. We're going to look at how to fairly value those. Um, Smithfield system really had a great way of bringing everything back to square one and coming up with a good way to think about how we ratio prices the same way that nutritious might think about how you guys are ratioing nutrients or, or ingredients, being able to take that and empower your buying team to go out there and say, Hey, this isn't a good buy or a bad buy. This is, uh, you know, cookie meal is worth X percentage of corn, not this price today, especially with the volatility in corn and soybean meal. It's really difficult to compare today's price to yesterday's price of anything. Unless you're bringing it all back to one single point in time, you're really never going to get a good view of what's going on. So I see a lot of noise and at the beginning, there's a huge amount of noise of uh, who called today is who you're out there trying to run these cost type exercises on to having a formal process to maybe that process is a little too formal and all, all variants in between. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts, MS Gold, the best hygiene products and livestock farming. Swine management to the next level, cloudfarms.com. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. Hi, welcome. This is Jared Purvis. Uh, welcome to our Swine It podcast show. This is my first podcast, so bear with me. But we have a great guest today, uh, Mr. Casey Shaw. Uh, Casey, if you want to take a minute and just tell us a little something about yourself. Sure. Um, thanks for having me. And I guess most people know me from my time at Smithfield. And these days I spend a lot of time working with kind of more various producers and various species. And so I get to uh, see some things from the outside looking in that look a little different than when I was on the inside looking out. And hopefully we can dig into that a little bit. Very good. You know, I've, I've gotten to know Casey here, uh, known him for, for a while and uh, always admired his work at Smithfield. And, uh, but uh, kind of getting to know him a little better and always admired his ability to, to look outside the lines and, and kind of look back and, and think outside the box. Uh, so I think that's uh, one of your, your good skills. And maybe something we'll talk about today uh, is, is you as a crystal. I think you've got a crystal ball that you can see things that uh, a lot of people uh, don't, don't see necessarily and have some good perspectives on, uh, on the industry. So uh, just kind of you know, me being in the swine industry, uh, tell us a little something about, uh, you know, you work there at Smithfield and, and how that's uh, affected you, your perspective today. Well, um, I was at Smithfield for about 10 years, I guess. And I got to work with uh, Dr. Coffey and Hanson and uh, Dr. Thomas Shipp and uh, Dr. Johan twice. And, and all kinds of other doctors and uh, the Smithfield system is a little unique in terms of how it approaches least cost per pound to gain. Uh, 
But the short story is when I started there, Smithfield as a system fed about 2% alternative ingredients. And when I left, it wasn't unusual to see a diet north of 40% alternative ingredients, uh, which is a heck of a lot different than what I see uh, now post Smithfield working with, you know, folks that are using toll mills or, or making their own feed. Um, there's a lot of folks that think they're really good at feeding alternative ingredients that like, man, we got it to eight. And, uh, I think there's a big, um, misconception or difference between, uh, what people think is, is doing a really good job with alternatives, um, versus others. You've always done a really great job and, uh, even feeding things way beyond what, uh, what I would say a mega mill is capable of doing, uh, really progressive things like steep water, glycerin, stuff that a lot of normal dry pellet mills wouldn't even think to consider. But um, it's the world is a lot bigger than uh, most people's monthly process. And maybe that's a good place to start is uh, you get to work on integrated swine feed, but you also get to do some toll milling for other folks. And I would bet that those kind of monthly routines are very different. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you see it? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, I always have a conception of, you know, Smithfield, you've got all this, you know, this uh, buying uh, volume uh, advantages. But uh, I think at the same point, you try to uh, look for ways that you can improve cost uh, and without changing, you know, performance. And so that's the thing I admire with, with, uh, with what you've done as far as bakery, I've seen that, you know, made some very good strides, uh, there, but, uh, it's, it's all about, like you said, your, your cost per pound of gain and how to lower that and, uh, reduce costs. Well, what do you think are some, were some of the challenges as you, as you, it sounds like, you know, now you've moved, Smithfield's moved maybe into kind of being much like a smaller, you know, uh, a cold miller or something, a meal that, having a small meal mentality, but yet having all this, this vast, you know, buying power of, of, of commodity ingredients. What were some of the challenges as you, as you moved that system towards that? I think there are some phases in, in that transformation. The first phase is kind of getting beyond the good buy, bad buy mentality and just having a process for saying, Hey, we're going to look at a broader array of ingredients. We're going to look at how to fairly value those. Um, Smithfield system really had a great way of bringing everything back to square one and coming up with a good way to think about how we ratio prices the same way that nutritious might think about how you guys are ratioing nutrients or, or ingredients being able to take that and empower your buying team to go out there and say, Hey, this isn't a good buy or bad buy. This is, uh, you know, cookie meal is worth X percentage of corn, not this price today, especially with the volatility in corn and soybean meal. It's really difficult to compare today's price to yesterday's price of anything, unless you're bringing it all back to one single point in time. You're really never going to get a good view of what's going on. So I see a lot of noise. And at the beginning, there's a huge amount of noise of uh, who called today is who you're out there trying to run these cost type exercises on to having a formal process to maybe that process is a little too formal and all, all variants in between. Um, but I had a situation yesterday where uh customer said, Hey, uh, we've, we've never fed anything, but a 50, 50 animal vegetable blend. And then how's, how's that, how's that possible with all the craziness with COVID and all this other stuff? Surely there's been a time where that was sure not convenient or not economic or not something, right? There must've been a time where there was a better answer. And the answer was like, Hey, this is our box. This is what we do. Don't ever do that. Uh, but then I also see take like a dairy guy, they can go from really, uh, corn 
traditional feed type system to very heavy local forage to uh, lots of nutrients coming through the liquid package, their systems can vary widely, even though they're not necessarily changing the diet a huge amount week to week or, or even month to month. They're really good at, at adapting to what's good locally. And man alive, if every feed mill doesn't look pretty damn similar in the swine industry, that maybe doesn't reflect what's available locally and certainly not necessarily what's going to be available next year or next 10 years. That's where some of those things like, um, you know, you trialing gristle, uh, glycerin in the mixer, like I, where I started with Smithfield, no way, <laughs> this is, <it> wasn't <laughs> going to happen. Um, where they are today, you can go from donuts to to feed wheat, right? And they're evaluating all those things all the time in a, in a very different way. Um, and a lot of that was due to this way of looking at formulation that uh, Dr. Jeff Hansen and Dr. Terry Coffee kind of built that allowed their nutrition team to have really the ability to empower the buyers. And that's, that's, I think if there was one thing that anybody could do better, it's the, you know, how can the buyer make the nutritionist better at their job? How can the nutritionist make the buyer better at their job? A lot of times uh, as a buyer, I would say the worst thing that could ever happen is the magic dust salesman to nutritionists. There's a reason that everything gets sold into the nutritionist. And so the buyer is more expensive, right? But uh, there's also a, Hey, these are support operations. How do we go out there and make system better? Right. Yeah. Um, I think a good example of that in fat world is, uh, I saw on online, you had a recent, uh, recently celebrating some sow productivity amongst your team. Right. I think, uh, that that would be really interesting for folks, particularly in the Carolinas where we're used to, uh, health issues being the norm. Uh, what was that? Uh, what was that PSY number? 30, 30 something, right? Yep. 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 It's, it's, it's pretty amazing how, how those, uh, benchmarks change and, uh, we just keep pushing through, uh, as an industry. But, uh, but you know, you're, you're, you're talking on the, uh, about your, your byproducts and, and being able to incorporate that. Did you have kind of a, a breakthrough moment. I mean, you kind of, it seems like there's a lot of people that are, that think inside of a box and we've got a, you know, uh, obviously we're going to have some variability. Uh, I'm trying to remember the guy, but, uh, perfection is, is maybe the, uh, is a big, uh, hurdle as far as, uh, improving things because we're trying to be perfect. We're trying to get diets that are perfect. And, but, you know, we can live with some variability. Did, did you see kind of a nutritionist uh, behind this or, or some pushback? I think the um, couple things. The, the biggest thing probably was when you start including those ingredients in the diet consistently, then the supply chain can adapt so that they can be available consistently and it kind of builds on itself. So the jump from two to four percent is just as hard as the jump from four to eight and eight to sixteen and sixteen to thirty-two. There's a lot of things in in various levels of the organization that really need to go right. Um, but a big part of that was, you know, down here we have the Selma Transload. Those guys do an excellent job, but look at the way that they've grown as as both poultry and swine have utilized the asset, right? And all of a sudden it's available all the time so we can use it and uh, take uh, uh, bakery meals, probably a great example in sow feeds. There was no way you're messing with a sow in summertime in Eastern North Carolina uh, yeah, yeah. when it's a hundred degrees outside. <laughs> uh, you better damn not run out. If you're going to put an alternative ingredient in a breeder, better be able to keep it in till October, right? Well, that's a heck of a lot harder to do when there's not a 10,000 ton pile sitting 45 minutes up the road, right? Yeah. Um, but, 
Go well, ahead, it's kind of just got a chicken in that chicken or the egg. You know, you got to have the supply that it's important, as you said, the female. You you know, once you put something in, the sows, you know, they get used to especially lactating sows. You don't want to mess with that. So, so if, if you, as you started incorporating some of these byproducts, uh, I guess you know you you've been able to increase that that supply chain and and move that forward and and maybe find other alternatives. What are some of the? I said you were a crystal ball person. Uh, I think you got a good crystal ball. What? Where do you think the next uh, opportunities are? Is in byproducts with with food waste streams and what have you? Well, people aren't going to become less wasteful anytime soon. So I think that's continuing uh, to evolve and grow. Uh, that particular byproduct has changed a pretty good bit this year, in that all of the broiler guys kind of woke up at one time and said, you know, we're not really getting a premium for this antibiotic free vegan chicken anymore. We're going back to feeding whatever's the cheapest way to grow a chicken. And they moved really fast, right? From north of 60% being vegan fed around Christmas time to, I would have said about 25% by mother's day. So a huge change and bakery works really well on that diet and it's moved uh, pretty quickly. And so, um, more of the opportunities that I see are, um, when pork production margins in China are really bad, seat way get really cheap. It's ex- exceptionally cheap right now. Um, imported lysine had gotten really cheap earlier this summer to the point of our domestic suppliers slowing down in production. Um, and if you look at kind of historical synthetic amino acid ratios to corn and soy we're way outside the range on the low side as to what those synthetics would be compared to where corn and soy are today and so whenever those synthetics get cheap all those ingredients that aren't quite perfect start to formulate really well so they'll heck a lot easier to feed ddgs when synthetic lysine is real cheap right um on a on a basis to soybean meal and so I think how long will that trend last? Who knows? But for the moment, byproducts in general look pretty good when synthetics are cheap. And synthetics, as long as maybe not good news for the forecast for pork profitability, by the way, but as long as uh, the China situation is a serious headwind, then that kind of weighs on some of the things that they're really big consumers of, right? Uh, Lysine in particular stands out that way. And I think that's a great opportunity to say, hey, that's not a good situation. What does that mean for something else, right? A good example of that is uh, the war in Ukraine. Awful situation. Really great for North American sunflower production. Sunflower oil demand is really inelastic and growing. And sunflower meal as a feed ingredient whether it's on a protein basis or a fiber basis is wicked cheap and the acres are great and the demand for the oil is good. And so um, you could feed something like sunflower meal darn near anywhere in North America today and then probably save you some money. Couldn't have said that pre war in Ukraine because a lot of that sun was being produced over there. So usually where there's something bad happening, there's an opportunity somewhere if you can just kind of look around the corner to find what's uh, what's going on. But those are probably the, in the immediate situation. The Chinese situation makes for really great opportunities for long-term pricing and things like whey and lysine, um, which opens up some things like uh, DGs, de-oiled, any of those lysine-deficient byproducts are going to be uh, formulating really well, I think. Uh, probably for the crop year and then sunflower meal i think is as long as uh as long as there's an armed conflict going on over there that's disrupting particularly sunflower markets uh you're going to see really good opportunities ingredients like that um the other thing that i've seen a little bit is uh, chinese coming in and buying huge amounts of canola meal out of canada it feels a little bit like the trade war in that it's uh, anywhere but here kind of buying. And we all watch those USDA flash sales, but we don't necessarily hear about those in Canada. And so even though the canola crop is pretty good, uh, 
canola exports, I think, out of Canada are going to be really impressive. So maybe you could see some some shifting around, uh, maybe more regionally, uh, West Coast in particular. I think you can see some diet changes and stuff over there. Um, and then the last one that I think is maybe a longer term opportunity, your last two that are longer term opportunities are uh, corn fermented proteins are an ingredient that if you haven't heard about, you're going to be hearing more and more about. I think the industry statistic is they're going to make about a million tons of new production annually starting this year. That's a 25% yeast cell wall with a DDG that the fiber has been removed essentially. And uh, historically, a lot of those high pro DDGs were lysine deficient and too expensive and not, at least in our area, they weren't in stock in Selma for you to formulate against, right? Some of that chicken or the egg type problem. Um, you get a million tons a year of new production. They're coming uh, coming to a mill near you somewhere, right? Um, but they're really today priced attractively, uh, especially within the context of that nursery diet where poultry meals gotten really damn expensive as all those birds came back from antibiotic free, vegan fed, moved back into their 58 blends. Those meat byproducts are really expensive on a per unit of soy basis. That creates the opportunity for the swine guys to say, hey, uh, it's not just anti-vegan fed animal necessarily. It's the be opportunistic in your program, right? And so I think there's I think there's a pretty good amount of opportunity in that nursery diet of hey, on a relative basis, still a lot of people feeding a very traditional poultry meal nursery diet. Things like the pre-digested soy, corn fermented proteins, great uh, savings opportunities there, and probably in grower diets too as they get cheaper and more available. Uh, so those are, those are probably the, the biggest ones. And then the last one is really uh, palm and palmoline some swine guys really kind of on the leading edge of feeding that usually where it was available earliest, but as renewable diesel continues to grow out, I think the current renewable diesel capacity is already bigger than biodiesel capacity. And that's just in a couple of years of grow out. And so these renewable diesel plants are way bigger than any of the traditional biodiesel plants that we ever were really accustomed to. It's kind of tough to wrap your head around like, hey, each one of these is like the whole size of the the existing biodiesel infrastructure, sucking a huge amount of that animal fat out of the diet, which we've experienced a little bit in the past couple of years with high fat to corn ratios. But what's a little bit unique now is we're starting to see some of the other fat types where it was just uh, low FFA, you know, bleach fancy tallow. Now it's a, uh, it's, impacting bft it's impacting choice white grease uh, we shipped some uh poultry fat into biodiesel and renewable diesel for the first time recently um historically it's been a maybe you have a biodiesel plant that could take it but there's some of this way with the really high fat to corn ratios the last couple of years it was like oh that's really interesting but it's not in my backyard right um, now it's starting to creep into the Southeast a little bit more than it had been, uh, becoming a little bit more relevant. And so, um, palm oil, I think whether it's palm oil or palm, palm oiling or some kind of blend with palm in it, I think you'll be hearing a lot more about, uh, certainly this coming year, but in the coming years in general, it's, um, palm and corn fermented proteins are, are here to stay. I think as long as policy kind of keeps driving us down that road. Exactly. Yeah, you made good points. It seems like we've got to be opportunist and we've got to have a pulse on what's going on and what are some of the opportunities and then be able to capture them. I always thought, you know, uh, if I had to uh, build a new feed mill, I would have probably 10 times the soft bins. I would have, you know, more liquid bins. And, uh, you know, that's... uh, it's kind of like micros, you know, or a closet. You know, you got so many, so many. You'll keep as much stuff as your your closet will allow you to keep. So that's right. I think that's the same thing in a feed mill. 
you know, uh, there's so many opportunities we have if we have the storage and be able to segregate, you know, those different ingredients. But uh, as most of these, you know, integrated meals are, they're, they're designed more or less for a corn soy diet and for efficiency. And, and so uh, they're not really conducive to, to, you know, movement and trying to incorporate some of these uh, byproducts, like you say. So I think it's going to drive maybe, uh, you know, better design, better uh, flexibility to be able to take some of these. You know, I've had people uh, with with stuff like like uh, flour. You know, they have some off spec flour, big savings. You just gotta have you gotta have a bin that you can, you know, and it's expensive to have a bin there that you don't, you know, you just want to keep open. You're always gonna have something in it. So to try to understand what are the, you know, what are the byproducts that uh, you're gonna get the best return on, and uh, but having some flexibilities so when you have those opportunities, you're able to, you know, capture those. So good point. You know, to your point on the, uh, I've never fed maybe as low energy diets as I'm feeding today uh, is to the point, the fat uh, corn ratio. And, and it doesn't seem like we, we're probably going to ever go back to some of those ratios that we used to enjoy. Um, what, what do you see that? I mean, that, some of the opportunities there, uh, soybean meal, do you think, wh- wh- where do you think we might see some better soy? It makes sense that we, we'd see some better meal pricing. Yeah, I, I think there's certainly crush coming online, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's soy, right? So uh, to some extent, the really cheap sunflower meal is a byproduct of global oils demand in general, right? Um, it, yes, a byproduct of the conflict, but also that that the, some of those food grade oils are in extreme demand because of the impact of soybean oil on those things. So, yeah, I think there's more soybean meal f- for sure as there's more crush, uh, and I, to some extent that, that should have and flow with uh, animal populations, um, but also other other proteins right and so corn fermented protein a good example of that really good demand for distillers corn oil into renewable diesel this kind of facilitates that industry saying hey um, this used to be about taking a piece of corn making ethanol and having a byproduct right now uh don't call that an ethanol plant, right? It's a biorefinery. They're they're making CO two. They're making you know every single thing is a product, um, and that facilitated what we used to think of as uh, you know an energy ingredient when you started feeding DDGs. To well, we're going to buy it at a ratio or a basis to corn, but it's really providing some protein in the diet to. I wouldn't be surprised if a traditional DDG doesn't exist in 10 years and it's nothing but corn fermented protein, um, where it really is, uh, you know, a 52 pro product. That's very consistent. Um, I think the soybean is changing too, and that's, it's probably a longer discussion for another day, but, uh, the protein content of soybean meal seems to drop every single year and the guarantee drops maybe more than even the bean drops every year. And so, yeah, there's more meal, but there's less protein in that meal too. Uh, yeah, so that product. product's changing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's been a thing with distillers. I've seen, uh, we used to buy some distillers, uh, you know, with the oil uh, content was, you know, 9, 10%, even 11%. Yeah, 12. And, yeah, yeah. And then they started spending that's long gone. Yeah, they started spinning all the oil, and now we've got products that are more like, you know, 5% um, and, and, and less. So it, it changed the, the ingredient, and it really made it tough to, you know, to really get into diets here uh, in North Carolina. So, you know, if we were in Iowa, you know, and I had an ethanol plant right beside of me or something, it might make sense. But so um, I, I think that's that, that – to your point, you know, soybean meal has changed, and it's, it's not the value – uh, that we once had, uh, we, we keep seeing those values drop. So, yeah, 
it's uh yeah gone it's uh, gone are the days of of uh i re- remember seeing loads of 49 percent protein soybean meal in, in the carolinas particularly on a hot sour yeah um, and now it's not uncommon to see some stuff particularly in the upper midwest you know tick down that 44 range you say man that's uh that's a heck of a change over a decade right and it seems like the trend is going in one direction yeah so i think um it's subtle it's a subtle change right but i think there's some changes on and what's going on with the bean i think there's certainly some changes on what's going on with uh how much of our crop whether it's a the bean crop or the hog crop is really grown for the purpose of sending to asia um and domestic policy seems to be favoring uh domestic consumption right and yep. somewhere in there there's an opportunity uh maybe different in each locality but there's opportunity everywhere well i think back to jeff hatson always said we're farther from the corn pile and uh, maybe that's drive has driven some of that you know if we were in iowa you know maybe these things don't make as much sense but here in north carolina we're just we're a grain deficit state you know and we we could probably i don't know what it wouldn't take us long to use up all the corn in north carolina and and poultry and, and swine diets uh so got a hell of a crop this year though yep yep i hope uh <laughs> we need it <laughs> that's right but but even with a hell of a crop the deficit's still yep 350 million ish and growing at i would say two to four percent a year and that's mostly a function of uh broiler expansion just continuing to grow right yep you know and, and that brings us to a maybe a uh another tangent there where do you you, you kind of look at that swine uh, uh expansion you look at uh poultry poultry teams that keeps expanding and uh, it looks like we're kind of in a contraction mode here in the swine what, what do you think are some differences there with with those even though we've got integrators um what do you think's the the difference there and why one industry is is it maybe expands in, in a you know maybe a not uh great commodity uh year what are what are some of the things that are different that if they certainly have their headwinds too right um yeah not unusual for the poultry guys to see some deep red margins somehow as an industry they always find a way to grow uh, concentration of the largest players maybe there's a difference there but i think what i really see as the biggest difference is from the biggest poultry guy to the smallest poultry guy, they're really tight and margin management, even when the margins are bad, tying that purchase and that sale, the commodity purchase and the product sale to get closer in tune. Uh, in general, not to say there's not swine guys that do a great job of it, but I would say the average poultry guy does a better job of tying the timing of the purchase and the timing of the sale to be more deliberate maybe about managing margins not that we all like don't look at that checkbook every day but i think there's a lot more cross-functional cooperation maybe in the timing of that flat price purchase and sale in poultry um, than there is in swine and that's i think one of those things where um when when you have those things tightly aligned especially in really volatile markets it enables them to react maybe quicker and sometimes frequent small changes lower or higher take you um, not as far from the middle as when you're swinging for the fences right and so i think that's uh I think that's probably the biggest difference that I see between the two. It's not necessarily they don't have good times and bad times. That certainly exists. I think what I see are a lot of really small changes instead of really big changes to uh, when was, when can you think of a time that the poultry guys had 20% of barns uh, state empty? Probably never. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, to some extent they didn't build them to begin with unless they had a market uh but also they 
they seem to find a way, right? And that's just a huge difference. Um, also structurally or maybe biologically, you know, an eight-week production cycle kind of naturally has that, right? Um, and so maybe they're they're built to run equal a little bit easier because they're not dealing with multi-year production cycles. But I would say that if some of the breeder problems they've had, um, particularly through COVID, resemble a lot like the parity problems that we had in swine. Say, oh, they got it so much easier on that side of the fence. And you're like, <laughs> no, they still have a couple generations upstream that they're trying to manage that you got to breed that lady to to have your breeder, right? Um, same thing with, with guild development and our side of things. And, um, well, you see it in, in your system better than anywhere, right? That, uh, it, there are no magic bullets. That's right. And I think, yeah. uh, oh, go ahead, sir. No, I just said, you know, we, yeah, we, I think we all struggle. HPAI, they've been really some struggles and we see that with table eggs. You know, everybody knows, uh, kind of sees that when they go to the grocery store, but, um, you know, to your point, um, the cycle is quicker, so they can take their foot off the gas or, or put the foot on the gas a lot easier than maybe the, the swine guys. But I, I was wondering, do you think, uh, as far as adoption of technology, that they are uh, quicker? It seems like they are quicker to adopt and to, you know, integrate things into their systems. Uh, we're always seemed like the swine people are kind of behind the the curve a little bit. Uh, do you think that's part of maybe uh, being able to, to 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 take out some of the it captures some efficiencies that maybe we're slower to adopt or more uh, hard headed, I guess maybe. There's some hard headed uh, <laughs> ultra producers out there for sure, yeah. um, and some that uh, when it comes to being opportunistic with ingredients are the opposite of that. Um. But what I do think is um, they're pretty quick to adapt, take like the antibiotic free to conventional. The For such a big industry to change so systematically everywhere, it's not like they all hopped on a call and said, hey, we're going to stop making antibiotic free chickens tomorrow. It's no margins were driving that decision and they really quickly adapted to what the customer was telling them where this morning I was having a, uh, an argument or, uh, a debate with, uh, Dr. Jeff Hansen about marbling and, and iodine value in swine. And, you know, he was espousing if only all of our, uh, if only of all of our loins looked like ribeyes, then, then American demand would, uh, would dig us out of this hole. Right. And say, well, uh, chicken guys are still in trade down mode, uh, going to be tough to compete with that right and so I, I think there's a uh maybe they're just a little bit better at letting the consumer pull instead of pushing um and for us when you have these big swings in profitability especially when the export market is red hot or grain markets go through the roof and all of a sudden we're trying to sell a bunch of pork domestically again um we've got some swings at the system level that are maybe unique to swine. Uh, I once heard uh, swine pork exports to China described as crack cocaine for the swine producer, right? Um, when they're buying, there's not enough capacity in the world. And when they're not, they're not. And whenever you have such a huge difference in how much of your production is exported, there's going to, there's going to be some differences domestically too, I think. And I think that's a big piece of it. Um, and then they've done a, they've done a much better job at stealing market share from pork in breakfast and lunch, uh, especially during COVID. And since, um, that's not a dinner plate, uh, ribeye discussion. That's a, uh, there's chicken on that biscuit instead of a piece of sausage. Um, that's a, that's an issue, right? We lost, lost market share in breakfast and lunch and never really got it back. And it's, uh, you can espouse whatever's going on in the export market, but uh, pork's lost a lot of market share at home too. And so uh, I don't know that I would go as far as some of the uh, Prop 12 stuff as driving demand necessarily, but 
uh, there is a piece of it as say, hey, let's uh, let's be mindful of those domestic trends of what's actually going on the dinner plate. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time talking about uh, biosecurity and how that sow is housed. Meanwhile, you know, you have this uh, new fast casual whole sector and 17% of stuff that we eat out is fast casual today and pork's absent from that plate. Uh, I'm pretty sure that doesn't have to do with how many square feet the sow has. Somehow we weren't on the plate, right? Yeah, and so that's right. uh, huge opportunities on the on the marketing side, uh, for sure. Uh, I guess the challenge for us is getting from there to all right. How does that mean we feed the animal? Right? Um, is that room for specialty programs? Maybe. Um, is that maybe saying, hey, we've got to be hyper focused on cost per unit of gain? Um, as opposed to just doing things the way that we've always done it. Absolutely. Right. There's, uh, it, when I first started at Smithfield, I always thought about pork as middle protein, right? People would trade down from beef to pork, pork to chicken. Today, pork is the third protein. People trade down from beef to chicken and then chicken to pork. Dr. Hanson and I disagree on that vehemently, but I think the, the numbers hold out that, Chicken is on a tremendous amount of the U.S. plate. And if we're the third protein, then we better be cost competitive at retail, right? Premium programs matter, but being laser focused on productivity, I think, is is really more important than ever before. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to, hey, you got to, as a buyer, you got to engage the mill Accounting, nutrition takes a lot of parts to feed those opportunity ingredients. It takes a lot of uh, understanding from the whole team beyond just, hey, what's the hot new ingredient? You're going to have to figure out how to make it work in your system. Um, sow productivity, ultimately, I think, being the biggest opportunity. Lots of things you can put in that diet. Animal that does not like change, particularly when it's hot. So it's got to go right. And yeah, so that's right. That's a lot right. of risk, a lot of reward, uh, a lot of things that have to be put in place to make all that happen. Right. Um, but where is there more opportunity than going from, you know, 19 PSY to uh, 32, right. And from your high indexing farms, um, that's a heck of a lot of productivity. That's uh more important than a penny change in the price of corn. Exactly. Yeah, there, there's so many areas that, um, as you said, you know, being a least cost producer, you know, there's there's so many, we've got so many, wear so many different hats and we've got to incorporate so many different groups and we've got to be all working together uh, and then throw out some of our uh, sacred cows, so to speak. You know, we're always going to make mistakes, but uh, you got to challenge. I think that's the thing. we got to challenge our systems and, and challenge or what we think or what's been done in the past and and uh, be open-minded to, as you said, try new ingredients and not being afraid to make a mistake. You know, I've, I've made mistakes. You know, I learned from them. You know, uh, you just move on and then you, you, you just, but you keep, you keep looking for that opportunity and you keep trying to, you know, improve your margins. Uh, and your point on the, the port, you know, that's, that's true. Uh, I think we've got to figure out how to, the consumer is going to, is driving, you know, what they want. You know, we got to be able to meet what they, what they desire. They're the consumer, but we also got to put something out there that they want to buy. You know, they, they taste good, you know, and maybe it's, maybe it's education. You know, uh, my, my mother used to overcook pork and, uh, my wife does too. And, and, uh, you know, <laughs> we got pork so lean, you know. And it was just like you overcook, and it's just like a piece of leather. I mean, it's just a terrible experience, you know. So I think there's, uh, you know, maybe we need to, you know, try to bring something that's more palatable to consumer. Yeah, uh, no doubt with. about that. I uh, I grew up in the apple business, and they say eat the first apple with your eyes and the second apple with your taste buds. That's right. <laughs> 
there's a heck of a lot of truth in that in the customer experience that um, there's so many parts of the animal, right? There's so many pork products that are made from an animal. And then what, uh, what you make of it when you come home makes a, makes a huge difference. And how we inspire those fast, casual folks to get our product on the menu is really important too, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I, and it's funny, my my wife, I like a good pork chop. You know, my, all my kids, my wife, want they want a ribeye or whatever, you know, beef. But I still like a good thick pork chop. <laughs> if you cook it right, you know, to me, it's yes. just, it's a, good, it's a good experience. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Feed flow. Feed is too expensive to ignore. Take control with FeedFlow. Adiseo is a worldwide leader in animal nutrition, providing nutritional solutions and services which fuel predictable profits. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. An animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a stimbiotic targeted to improve fiber digestion. To request access, contact NAM at abvista.com. That's N-A-M at abvista.com. Well, very good. And uh, we, we, you and I can sit here and talk all day. We have uh, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but uh, all I wanted to, and one thing I, uh, I wanted to uh, add, uh and maybe the viewers, uh, your wife uh, is a pretty good golfer. I understand she played at State. So I always want, I wanted to ask you, uh, do, you, do, you do you go out and, and can you compete with her on the golf course? I or, cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot, but I've got uh, two daughters and my seven-year-old is golfing a couple times a week. And uh, I've got hope that somebody can beat her ass. <laughs> but i am no uh i'm no challenge at all okay I'm, I'm a hacker myself so i wouldn't i wouldn't dare get within 100 miles you know, of a golf course with her so but uh anyway so i get we're at the point uh we got three questions uh first question uh you know with what kind of a book would you recommend would be, be about uh whatever topic that you think uh inspired you or or was a good read Likely. Well, um, I would say uh, Atomic Habits is an uh, older bestseller, but I revisited it recently, and I think that's really a, uh, a great opportunity uh, for us to, to create flexibility, I guess, in our system by habitualizing the things that we can. And so um, whether you get the the, the blankest version or, or the full version, that's a really good one to, to, to revisit and within the scope of uh, creating structure creates flexibility sometimes. And I think that's in formulation more true than anything else is to say, um, just bringing all those pricing decisions to one single point in time instead of looking at a different ingredient every single day was really critical in feeding uh, more and better and being more nimble. And sometimes there's so much noise out there that if you don't distill it down to a single point, you just never really quite get there. So that, that I would say uh, within the scope of owning your own space, that's a really great one to, to revisit. Okay. Very good. And uh, what would be uh, who you've somebody that's been impactful in your life, uh, Maybe uh, your thoughts there, uh, somebody that's uh, really maybe uh, been a big influence in your life. 
Oh, I've I've got a, a long list of <laughs> of influences there for sure. Um, probably one of my first bosses out of college. I worked for a private equity company, and he really uh, allowed me to see a lot of stuff that a kid of that age uh, or experience things that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten to experience. And that's really influenced how I've been able to to view business and finance and real options in particular um, and how to create optionality uh, within the system, I think is uh, probably one of the, one of the biggest factors today is, is to take what's a, a pretty simple cut and dry business and create optionality. And before you know it, there's margins and opportunity everywhere you look. And so. Very good. Uh, and what would you say is a, uh, if you look at characteristics of a highly successful person in, in our industry, what do you think some of the some of the traits that you think those those individuals have? Oh, some combination of grit and energy, right? Um, you don't uh, you don't have grit, you're not going to get very far. But you also have to have energy to get over that inertia. And, and there's in any large system, there's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of inertia in just our daily routine, right? What we're you're not going to see the opportunity if you're not open to looking for that opportunity. And so I think uh, anybody listening to this certainly has a passion for what it is that we do. I, I certainly do. But having that, uh, you know, my dad would always say, uh, as a farmer, the, the most thing you have to have is optimism, right? Because you go out there every day, deal with the thing that went wrong. <laughs> and so having that energy to really get out there and say, yeah, um, that's our opportunity to work the problem, right? And uh, having that attitude, I think, is just critical to success. Very good. Yeah, I think adversity is something that's, uh, you know, kind of a uh, a staple in our industry and just being yet be able to kind of overcome and, and keep on pushing the can down, kicking the can down the road for sure. That's right. Yep. Well, Casey, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. And uh, as I said earlier, you're one of the smartest persons I know and, and I always enjoy talking to you and uh, getting little gold nuggets every time I talk to you. Something I can use and take back and uh, learn from. So, very good. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I'm sure we'll catch up real soon. <laughs>